Welcome to Packet Pushes, the greatest data networking podcast that ever was invented yet so far. Maybe version two will get it better. What do you think, Mr. Ethan Banks? That's possible, but so far so good. Yeah, we haven't broken it yet. Uh, so we've got some guests here today to talk about our topic. I'd like to welcome Jeremy Philibin, Truman Boys, Perry Mongpoise, and Tommy McNicholas. Thank you so much for coming up on the stage and being victims. Thank them, yeah. So the topic we wanted to talk about today is, is it possible to accelerate the rate of change in enterprise IT? Now, for those of you who don't know that uh, enterprise IT is a $4 trillion market. Um, anybody here actually totaled up how much public cloud's worth? 40, 50 billion is the numbers I've sort of heard. So public cloud is about a 1% is about a 1% fraction of the total spend that enterprise IT gets out there every day. And one of the things is that everybody says everything's going to the public cloud. And, and you know all the technology development, all the innovation, all the funds happening in the public cloud. And the, my view is that they, we could do a lot more with our existing $4 trillion than we're doing today, but there's a great deal of resistance in the public cloud. Now, various companies have talked about the next generation of technologies like Google's SRE and Facebook Open Compute Project, LinkedIn with their Open19 and Open Fabric announcements. And they're really about designing the networking costs, uh, you know, changing the, the, the costs of their operations, something that's unique to them. And most of the reason that those companies get out there and talk is because they're recruiting. They need an awful lot of staff because they're growing very fast, and talking in public about what they're doing is a way to avoid the recruiting costs. But it also creates a sort of a glamour around the public cloud that they're doing cool things, they're having fun, they're doing the exciting stuff, changing the way things are. But I don't know um, why enterprises haven't been able to do that. So. I want to start off by talking about attacking a pretty tough topic. Um, and we touched on this yesterday when um, Peyton got up on stage and talked about how difficult it is to buy products from enterprise IT. He talked about the process of weeks of negotiations, um, haggling over the price like you're down in the, in the, the bazaar in Egypt, you know, trying <laughs> to buy a peeper virus. It really feels like it. Is there something we can do to change that process of buying, like remove the pain from that and get back to a sort of a, a much leaner sort of thing? Let's start with you, Jeremy. Well, uh, it can be difficult to, uh, <laughs> to, to acquire new, new equipment. I mean, uh, the challenge that we have often is, is around pricing. You're right. Uh, it takes time to figure out what equipment you need, and then from there, it takes a significant amount of time to negotiate with either bars or vendors if you can get more than one vendor in as a, as a qualified candidate mm. and, and get through that process. Um, so complexity? Are you saying that the products are so complex that you just have to waste time buying them? Uh, that can be part of it. Um, you know, determining our requirements and then making sure that the equipment that we're looking at can all meet that requirement. I mean, the, the, the holy grail is to find more than one vendor that can meet the set of requirements that mm. we have and then pit them against each other. Mm. Uh, you know, if you can't do that, you're really just pitting bars against each other for one vendor, and, and that takes time to mm -hmm. get to that lowest price. You know, fixed list prices would be, would be great, yep. uh, but no one pays less, right? So Truman, you run a pretty big network. You talked yesterday about having like 350,000 nodes. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you find it just difficult to buy products? Um, I, I think it's an it's a interesting you know, perspective at this point. We're, we're looking at an area where we want to bring in new technologies where we can incubate new ideas, and some of them will take root and some won't. Um, you know, when we look at the, the traditional space out of the top tier one vendors, you know, I think the conversation is more around price. I think when we look at some of the new um, challengers to this uh, world, I think we're looking at more a, a question around features and functionality. Mm. Um, in terms of actually putting all the pieces together, I think that's still, there's challenges on both sides. With the traditional players, I think most of the challenges come from uh, making sure that you have a, a product that's fit for purpose, 
um, that it's actually going to scale and it's going to be suitable for your business. I think the reason why we look at challenges on some of the, the new incumbents is really around, um, you know, can I get a supplier that's going to give me all the pieces uh, to put it together? Perry, my question for you is, you know, if products, are, a lot of people talk about price, and I actually have a personal belief that enterprise IT really doesn't care about price, because clearly they don't, because of the products that they buy today. I mean, they're outrageously expensive. So one way to simplify the buying process would make it cheaper. Like we saw Martin on stage yesterday talking about, you know, he bought a $3,000 thing from China and it shipped in and that was pretty good. And that made it possible for him to conduct a project because it just cost so little. Mm -hmm. so, you know, could we reduce the price on these products to accelerate the rate of change? And I know, like, let's assume for a minute that the financial ramifications of halving the price of the goods um, would cause problems for, <laughs> for budgets and, and company organ structures. Is that something that we could do? To Yes, I think I would tie it to the discussion that happened yesterday uh, in the panel about the, the, the box versus the software, right? I mean, if you think cost is a matter of value, the question is, uh, where is the value coming from? Is it from simplifying the operations, is it about incorporating or security or elasticity or things like that. If you take it to the topic that we are saying about how do you accelerate adoption, I mean, the networks may be complex because we have this tying between software and hardware. And now what happens is that since traditionally we had distributed routing protocols and so on, there's a concern that not only the links will flap and what we were discussing yesterday, but rather the end-to-end structure of the network is going to be negotiated hop by hop. Mm. So as such, what you have is the fear that uh, a bad element negotiating things with the neighbors is going to essentially mess up the whole, the whole network. Mm. So the, the first thing is like, okay, the decoupling, should it be a decoupling of saying like, uh, like, you know, like an open switch versus a hardware that normalizes the way you access to the LEDs and ports and so on? The next is like, should be a, a topic about creating a normalization layer about what do we expect from a networking point of view in a way that you configure it with no dependencies between the nodes yeah. or maybe with dependencies between the nodes. And then uh, the discussion about cost comes in because now you have a holistic view of the network yeah. and now you say, I have these components that the value speeds and fits, I have this component that is managing the local box and I have this component... Yeah, I'm not so much concerned about value. I think customers see value working, right? They can know what... I think customers are getting better at understanding value. Well, I think there's two types of customers, those that understand value and those that just blindly buy whatever they bought before. But, um, you know, if we were to reduce the price of equipment, would we buy twice as much? So if we discounted equipment by half, would we buy twice as much? I think, as you were saying, let's say the market is, uh, is big and then portion is going to cloud, right? I don't think we are going to buy more switches because they are cheaper, because at the end of the day, you're going to buy more uh, servers based on the applications that you have. Yeah. So we are still not driven, the networking industry is not driven for the sake of the networking industry. We are driven by the fact that you need certain servers to run applications, and the network has to connect it. So definitely, if you have options from more expensive to cheaper, yep. you're going to look in terms of what features, what operations, what visibility, what value, and then you'll pick based on the criticality of the thing. You still have data centers that they are cost centers, mm. and you have data centers that are revenue engines. Yeah. Like, for example, a cloud... So is you're a saying that engine. the value could be justified if I could make IT a profit center, the perception of a exactly. profit center. Cloud, cloud is a profit center. So at this point, they are going to like, uh, look for minimizing the cost of certain infrastructure because they are yeah. kind of uh, monetizing us by cents or pennies or whatever. I it's disagree with that, but anyway. But, Tommy, why don't you jump in there? You work for a reseller. Um, pricing, you'd be much closer to the sensitivity of pricing. Well, so it's hitting it on a number of levels. Um, we're under the fire hose of technologies, complex technologies that are coming out trying to address the solution. Mm. So most of our customers 
either aren't skilled enough to distill what they're looking at and figure out if that's So that's that complexity issue that and we alluded to, products exactly. are too complicated. And yep. despite our best efforts to steer them to simpler and simpler designs, somehow by the end of engagements, they always end up as these monstrously complex monsters. And what also is happening there is we, with the, kind of a vision to steer that, it people keep doing these very large implement. They go in after the, instead of making a small cut and trying to build, build a, a simple network or a, a simple solution and build services around it, they keep trying to do these big monster cuts. Hmm. And then that becomes a complex solution. So here's, so here's my reaction to that. If I'm spending a million dollars on a piece of, on a thing, or $10 million or $100 million, then I have to spend time justifying working, ROIing. So if I could shrink that to 500,000, could I just take it? I don't have to spend so much time on risk manage, risk calculations and ROI and things like that. Let me jump in there because the price of something isn't all that important in, in the fact that I need to buy what meets my needs. You know, if I if I need to buy a car and a car costs half as much, I'm not buying two cars. I'm still buying one mm. car. Uh, the advantage is I don't need quite as many you know, senior level approvals for that sign off, and maybe the purchase cycle is a little shorter. But Jeremy, that's in contrast in a sense to what Tommy was saying. Tommy, you're saying that um, people come in with, you, you're trying to sell them a simpler design, and they end up with this monster anyway. So Jeremy, you're saying you, you need what you need, but uh, from Tommy's viewpoint, what they need is maybe different from what they think they need. Well, what, you... yeah, one thing that's really difficult in a corporate environment is going back to the well for more money, more money, more mm. money. Often, if you can get a certain amount of funding for a project, you, know, you want to fold everything you can into that project because mm. the but next I mean, time the secret you money... Of... The, the secret of open source is that it's free. You can just well, go and get it and start it, right? So the, the opposite of that. Well, so, yeah, <laughs> but that burden of getting the first testing going or the, you know, evaluating it, there's no cost. So I don't need to go and raise it a burden. Don't spend. Yeah. So it it's the extreme of that is if I can go and get started with an open source project and prove out my idea, then all of a sudden I can change. Whereas when you have to buy a very expensive high purchase price product, from an established vendor, then you actually have to, the buying cycle gets paralyzed. Yeah, but it is an order of magnitude easier for me to get CapEx dollars than ongoing OpEx dollars. I think OpEx is, <laughs> I don't understand this but fascination. To your point, I think there is, there is a sense of true in the sense that in a well understood and mature market, uh, yeah. prices justify the value and so on, but in a new market, uh, going back to your original question, is how do you drive adoption of new technologies? Mm. If uh, you have, like saying, evaluation licenses or ways to uh, try the new hardware or whatever. Definitely the, the fear of saying I need a million dollars just to try a new technology, that may be a way to overcome that. Well, what about, one of the other things that concerns me is that we now have these products that are now highly priced, very generously priced. And it leads into a point where uh, when you look at the financial results of companies like VMware and Cisco and HPE, 35% of the product price at sale point to the customer is sales and marketing, right? Why are we paying 30% of the product price to be sold to? But why are we not buying these things from Amazon? Yeah, and, and that thing, forget about the VMware, Cisco, Amazon, and so on. It's like the business model. What's the right business model for the future? Is it like uh, you create a big project, you allocate a lot of budget, you buy a lot of components, and so on, and then you go to long uh, sales cycles with negotiations, and so on? Or you say, can I click this and do it as a service? Mm. So I think the, the fundamental shift is not necessarily only uh, private cloud versus public cloud is a buying methodology that is I want to get it as a service because I don't want to incur the cost or the risks of certain uh, development methodologies. 
And that is fair. That's a fair discussion. I mean, so what you're saying there, let me try and just read that back to you to make sure I understand that. So you're saying if I buy a product as a service, so I buy a cloud service or a cloud API or software, you know, some sort of web service online, then all of a sudden I haven't had to make the major buying decision to capitalize it by servers, databases, you know. Yeah. If you think it's, it's a form of deferred uh, payment, because basically you say there's OPEX and there's CAPEX. If I start buying it as a service, I defer and I spread the CAPEX over a period of years, and maybe I don't even need the OPEX because somehow it's handled by the service component. Mm. So there's a different business model that, that has to be explored mm. by the, the IT industry, because otherwise it seems that the as-a-service is an exclusive business model for the cloud providers, when in reality it's just a business model that everybody could adopt. So we're selling for the sake of selling? No, it's not you're selling what's needed. You could yeah. sell it in different ways. It's like lease versus So my buy. experience of enterprise sales reps is they sell for the sake of selling. They want to get out there and sell. They spend more time selling. And the more selling they could do, the more reason they're justified for existence. And that creates more salespeople. Well, th th this goes back to what Tommy was saying. I mean, Tommy, is there a, um, you know, a buying, I have to buy this thing. I, no, I, it, your simple solution is nice, but I need this extra stuff that the vendor told me I need to buy to solve whatever the problem is. We always go for what's appropriate for the customer, right? We, we try and hold that line that we're not... <laughs> appropriate for the customer. Does the customer even know what that is? Most of the time. <laughs> yeah. we, we really have to, and like I said earlier, we have, we're under a fire hose of technology change and complexity, and we're always trying to push back against it and say, like, you need a flat topology. What are you doing? Why are you overcomplicating this? And it, mm still just keeps coming back. Yeah, I, just, I mean, it, it does highlight the fact that a lot of customers actually don't know what to buy. And that's why we have selling, because the, the salespeople have to go out and you know, educate the customer, which justifies the existence of salespeople. But you know, what we also know from Amazon is that if you just put stuff online, people will buy it. Well, they'll buy it if they're aware of it. Right? Yeah, they got to know what they're looking for. Yeah. yeah. Still cheaper than having an enterprise sales rep come and take but, up five weeks of your time. There's a, difference, there's a difference between knowing what you need and, you know, and having never heard of it. I mean, if you know what you need, you can go to Amazon, go to a marketplace, and then consume it. If you don't even know that that's a need you have, then you know, it's a different thing. So, so there's a dichotomy between uh, salespeople going out to sell because we made this thing. We can sell it and get extra revenue out of yep. it versus do you actually need it? It, and it's but we've talked to so many founders of startups and they're saying, like, you know, I've got this great product and now I have to spend the next two years of my life hiring a sales force to go out and knock on doors and ask for purchase orders. Why is it that the enterprise itself is not going out there and actively searching for products to buy? Yes. This, if you want, I had my experience because I was in, an in a small startup. Yeah. Uh, it's going back to your innovation question from before. You create something new and... It may be something new, or you think it's something new. I mean, let's not debate that. <laughs> let's right? assume it's awesome. Exactly. Right? Yep. Let's assume it's awesome. <clears throat> but uh, happens that basically enterprise, they are busy on their daily operations. They are not there to look at the thousand new startups coming with thousand new things. And then there is this notion of evangelizing or selling or whatever you want to call it. But discovering something new, especially with a mindset of saying, oh, if it's new, it's risky, it's dangerous. I don't want to touch it. I don't understand it. And, and that's a. So there's two aspects of something new. One is, Enterprise IT is not used to doing something new, mm -hmm. so they're not willing to change. Do hmm? you agree? I agree, yeah, that, that's, that's a major point right there. There's an inertia that comes because it's very easy during the next refresh cycle to buy a bigger version of the thing that you already had. Someone's gonna sign off on that. Oh, it's the same thing we're already doing, just more of it? Great, hmm. let's get it. So the second aspect is that we actually spend so much time trying to keep our current set of products running, which are usually pretty rubbish. You know, in 2017, the majority of people are still configuring their networks with the command line interface and pretending that that's the most efficient way to do something. 
you know, their batch handmade artisanal, you know, hipster coffee command line is still the only way to configure a network for most people. But it works. It works for the business. Um, you know, there's a massive early adopter tax, and you know, I, I wish there wasn't, but yeah. there is. And why does most of enterprise IT want to pay that tax? You know, in terms of additional time, uh, effort, bugs, dead ends, it, it makes no sense. You know, let let the startups that need to take that risk take that risk. You said sarcastically that the CLI is the most efficient. They think it's the most efficient, but in fact it is because of that, it is. that startup process. It is. There's the, tens the of thousands. The transition to the new process is very difficult. There, there are tens of hundreds of thousands of CLI jockeys out there that you can hire and, and solve your problem. If you go with a startup, mm -hmm. there are you know, dozens maybe, you yeah. know, if you're lucky. So the thing is, that, so what you're saying to me is because things are the way they are, they shouldn't change? No, no. Be, because things are the way they are, <laughs> let someone else take the risk, yeah. we'll follow along so who pretty would that, closely. Who would that be? You, Truman? Are you, are you ready to change the world and <laughs> turn it out, toss I, out the CLI? I mean, I, th I think you know, we'll, we are actually getting rid of the CLI, but I mean, I, I think the, the challenge is really, um, as you start to evaluate all these new solutions, there's an opportunity for paralysis. And, yeah. and you know, we see this, and you know, choose any technology. Look at cloud technologies. You know, all of a sudden, everyone is focused on private cloud, and they're doing OpenStack, and then it's like, what, squirrel? Just turn, pivot, now you're doing Kubernetes, Mesos. It's, you know, it's going to be something <laughs> new. I think in the networking world, it's the same thing. Hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, which, which network operating system do I want to run on my open switch? Right? Am I looking at you know, open network Linux? Is it snap route? You know, who is it? How do I put the pieces together? You know, for those that have the, the, the appetite, if they are ready to you know, embark on this, then they're definitely going to get some advantages. But you know, I think so that's why you have some companies that are able to, to move ahead, and then there's going to be a bunch of others that kind of follow behind and are looking for a couple of leaders. Now, you're re-engineering your practice at your reselling. Yes. Tommy, and you're really struggling. So, Sorry, that might be a little harsh. Uh, well, but I think that's fair. We're, we're, we're bringing on people that are more in the software world at this point. Infrastructure, we're holding our own. We know how to build data centers. We know how to build networks. And the only people I'm bringing on are people that are, have the na cloud native app mindset. Yeah. Um, and what, where I'm trying to focus, and, and I, I think there's a, there's a great entry, is a, a small, tight solution where people can stand up services and start to build. Um, if, if we keep going in with these you know, large designs, it, it doesn't, doesn't build a rapport with the customer, it doesn't build trust, because what, what I really need to put in a solution that's effective is a visionary on the customer side mm. who's going to stay the course, okay. right? They, they have to be bought in, they have to, to know what they... And it, I'm agnostic, I don't care if you put it in the public cloud or the private cloud or on a laptop in another room. It just needs to run and advertise a service and begin to provide that and build, build trust in the organization. So that comes back to this skills and training mm -hmm. topic that I often get around to, which is you know, most enterprises today have a staff member who's done four weeks of classroom time and a couple of weeks in their own time, and now suddenly they're equipped for a 40-year career in enterprise IT as a networking expert. Well, sometimes it's worse, though, because you'll have uh, the, the engineers who get more educated and pick up these new technologies, they get swallowed up like that, mm. and what ends up happening is that low-level junior engineer suddenly has a senior engineer title. He might not have a visionary above him. He can't architect a network. Mm. And now they're in a position where they're making decisions. Maybe they're overpaid. Mm. But whatever it happens to be, they're yep. not, they're not an, an agent of change now. They're paralyzed. They can't yeah. do anything. I call that the turd floats to the top. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally how it works in enterprise IT. If you stick around for long enough, you'll end up at the top of the pile, not because you're the best, just because you're the last person standing. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a little harsh, maybe, but anyway. Could be. It's breakfast time, man. Come on. <laughs> so if we want to stick with the idea of training, then what could we do? Like today in enterprise IT, we talk about um, sending people on vendor training courses, and the vendor have built training courses. Increasingly, the vendors of today have taken out the fundamentals of, of training and are focusing straight out on selling their products through training programs. And I'm having a problem with that. I'm struggling to recommend to customers to send people to vendor training programs because they're mostly useless. Yeah. I mean, is there something we could do? You know, what are we doing to try and get people to keep skilling, to keep learning, to keep researching instead of sitting there and going, I know everything I need to know. I'm going home with a bag of Doritos and watching TV. Uh, I mean, one of the challenges is, is you're, you're right, every, every training program that's successful now is tracked to some sort of certification, which, to write to Tommy's point, is because that will increase the value of the person taking it, and they can either do better in their current job in terms of compensation or move on. Uh, you know, what's the answer? I don't know what the answer is, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, it, it's hard to get uh, somebody to be interested in general purpose training or to read you know, general texts that aren't going to, you know, directly further their career. I, I, but Jeremy, I think, you know, is, is that anything? sort of general purpose information even out there? Um, you know, in, in, in a formalized sense, you know, for certifications or, you know, some training program that someone can latch on to and educate themselves. I think you sort of learn by osmosis. I think, you know, coming to events like this and being part of this community, I mean, this is a very tight community. This, you know, the people that you see in this room are people that you're probably going to see at other similar events and, you know, you, you learn by, you know, and then I think also the other idea is bringing people from your enterprise IT organization to these types of events so you start to plant the seeds. You know, it takes a long time to, to start to, uh, you know, gain traction, but I think over time, and we've seen this, I mean, I, I'd even go back to, you know, five, six years ago, the way to build a data center network, it was like everyone knew exactly how to do it. It's like spanning tree, L2, like it's, but, it's, but then all of a sudden you go, nope, that's not how you do it. This is mm. how everyone else does it in the new way. Yep. And it takes time, and now that's the new way to, to build. But it shouldn't take time. People should be willing to adapt. I mean, in a real way, what we actually have is vendors walking in the door saying, here's this great product. Because you're going to pay a squintillion dollars for it, you need a 10-year period to extract value from it. Therefore, there's nothing else you need to learn. That's literally a sales pitch I've seen. Yeah. You know, buy these chassis switches. They'll last you 20 years. You'll never need to buy another one. In other words, you'll never need to learn anything. Don't take a risk. Be, you know, don't take a risk. You don't have to know. We're going to do... This is where the sales pitch doesn't align with the reality. And this is where basically maybe IT should think about risk management, right? And until now, everybody's like, oh, if I buy this technology, I'm risk-free. It's like, well, uh, technology changes, trends changes. If you stick to a technology, you are not risk-free because you are getting stuck with the technology with maybe pricing and things like that. So instead of thinking uh, X vendor is going to solve all my problems forever, it's like, no, I have to become expert in these technologies and there's ABC and I have to try the new trends and so on. And, and goes back to the notion of evolving to new ideas, new trends, new products, new things. There has to be people in the organization that uh, like that. Mm. It's not that I'm the XYZ vendor expert. It's like I'm the owner of the infrastructure. I'm the owner of uh, networking. And mm. as such, I need to be aware of what's going on. And then you can see it like the discussions we had uh, with Truman, even, even from a startup point of view. You see certain um, uh, enterprises, IT departments, that they have a, an ethos that is much more is like, I'm going to learn everything. And I'm going to buy one, but I'm going to learn everything. I'm mm. going to try everybody. And they have budget for that. They have uh, time for that. And then they are faster to adjust to the cheaper, better, simpler, more agile technologies. Yep. And some people is like, no, don't bother. And then you're, you're stuck. <laughs> yeah, but the challenge here is that quite a lot of the products that we get from the vendors are so complex that 
and they have so many knobs and whistles and bells and, you know, pull this lever and 15 functions happen. Yes. And they're just so complicated that you actually can't use them. You never extract value yes. from them. And, and I think this is a trend, right? We went from the Unices and the DEX and the mainframes and so on, and then you got into a, into a corner, then it pivoted into components, like components everywhere and then integration everywhere. And we pivoted maybe way to the other side that everybody had to show the knobs. And now if you think, what is cloud? Cloud yep. is pivoting back to say, I have a unified view of consuming technology, and again, I'm going to go to this vertical monolith that uh, I don't see how it's gone. And I think there has to be kind of a balance and different buying departments are yeah. going to go different. My favorite is that hyper-converged systems are monoliths. We actually have the situation where the complexity of building it yourself out of Lego blocks like we do today, you know, storage array this, and blade server that with 15,000 different wiggly bits that you lose underneath you, mm. underneath the sofa, that sort of thing, is that's going away and people are actually saying, I actually just want to buy a, a, a vertically integrated system called hyper-converged. Mm. and actually locking themselves into a single vendor at the same point, which flies in the face of everything that we've talked about here. Mm -hmm. you know, Hyper-converge when you buy it from you know, a VX rail or a Nutanix or a, you know, whatever the, the current flavor of hyper-converged is this week, you know, you're actually walking away from independence and freedom and complexity and yes. just, you know, it, it, it is actually a classic example of simple cells. I think this is the trend we're seeing. It's the same as uh, you pick Amazon and then you realize, oh my gosh, I need to try Azure or I need to try Google or I need to try HyperConvert. Mm. Because there's this kind of uh, wondering and exploring what's the thing that you feel comfortable. So one point I'll make is um, like the Google SRE, right? Pe most people, they, they're looking at that and they're thinking, oh, that's a certification. It's another just thing I need to go learn. Um, yeah. And if you actually dig into it, it's, it's a mindset. It's an operating framework. It's, it's how to work differently, right? And people aren't applying that. Um, a good example of this is I attended a DevOps days, right? And very young crowd, very fired up on new technologies, Kubernetes, things like that. Um, and I ended up in a focus group where people were talking like, oh, what do you consider an outage? And it was very clear to me in the first five minutes that these guys hadn't, had, hadn't actually worked in enterprise IT at a level where they're assuming risk. <laughs> and I finally, I just exploded in the group, and I'm like, no, it, it, a, a, pro, a real outage is when you're 10 hours into an SLA breach and your company is accruing millions of dollars of fines, right? You, you don't have time to figure it out. So there's a problem with, the, like I said before, it's a vision thing. It's mm. staying the course to that change and getting these technologies in and letting that, that operating framework do its job, right? And that is a way to, to embrace the technology and assume the risk at the same time. But there's a disconnect from the people coming into it, from the people who are implementing it. We're going to have a discussion about millennials, aren't we? Yeah, we might. Because the people, almost exclusively, the people that are doing DevOps, you know, no disrespect to the gray beards in the room, but... Um, We're on the stage. <laughs> but, you know, like, you talk to these people with DevOps, and I went to a serverless conference in London a few weeks back, and everybody was, like, bright-eyed and bushy-tired, and I wasn't, like... And then I was sitting there next to a, 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 an EMC person who I've not, you know, he's, like, 35 years into a site, you know. We were discussing, you know, how long it would be until we retire. And all these kids are on stage going, serverless, it's all great, it's all awesome. And then I thought, these people just don't live in the same world. You know, they've never run a hospital, uh, you know, in, on a budget that just doesn't stretch far enough. And when it goes out, people, patients don't get processed. And, it, you know, to your point, it's absolutely the same sort of thing. Uh, I, I worked with a guy who was very brilliant, and I would consider him a devil. 
very practiced DevOps engineer, but I always had the joke that every time he would say just simply, that meant another six weeks of development. And <laughs> it, it, it would go back to that, and we, we'd have a problem with a, some of the automation for the network, and he'd be like, oh, but if we just simply do this, and I was like, okay, six weeks, yeah, every time, right? In the middle of design, you, you can't do that. You can't just push six weeks. So, so, so does that difficulty that, that we deal with with these early adopters, new problems, and so on, does that mean we go back to the HCI uh, point that you were making, Greg, that people just want to be able to uh, consume compute and networking and security in a, in a simple and easy way? Is that really the, the answer for the enterprise? Give them something simple, they'll buy that, and if it's vendor lock-in, whatever, and, uh, and we move on ahead that way. I think so. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we're not doing this to, to build networks or to build IT systems. It's to solve business problems. And you know, if the complexity's on the vendor side or the complexity's on the IT department side, it doesn't much matter to the business. Things Most were so much better department. in the 80s when we weren't actually building things for the business. We were building it just to have fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Do, do you remember? Right? Yeah. I'm not wrong, am I? I mean, we sort of like, oh, that's really cool. I think I'll get one of those because you know, that'd be cool to play with. But. No, that, I mean, that, that's the trap some of us fall into is, uh, you know, let's go see what that is. And if you don't tie that back to a business requirement, mm. then, uh, you know, you're doing your employer disservice. Do we actually understand the business requirements? Can the business actually talk to us in a language we understand? Or do they come down with waffly spreadsheets and say, you know, I've had plenty of discussions with executives who come down with a spreadsheet and say, I need to solve this problem. I'd say the issue is more the other way. It's not whether the business can, can communicate with technologists, it's can technologists communicate back to business the value that they would get out of a solution well, I'm going to get after you for that one. Yeah, that's <laughs> if I had to choose between a business person and a technologist and who's the smartest person in the room, it's usually not the business person. <laughs> it's not about the smarts, it's about the ability to communicate clearly and then translate a business requirement into technology. I think a lot of times we can understand the business requirement, but then as a technologist it's difficult to communicate back what you're actually buying uh, to mm. the business. There's a disconnect there sometimes. I but feel. that's because the business person isn't usually smart enough or hasn't actually been diligent enough in their job to understand technology and what it can do for them. They're not uh, paid to understand technology. They, yes, they are. They, they are. They paid, they're not paid to understand accounting either, but they do that. I, I disagree. Uh, you know, my, my you know, CEO, business level people, that they are asking me to solve their technology problems. If they define them right or if I, I working with them define them right, it's on me to make sure I come up with the right Yeah, but it's funny how your, you know, your team leader has suddenly got very good at spreadsheets so that they can submit accounting reports. Uh, well, you know, we have somebody else that does that in my department, but... Uh, my, my point is, right, yeah. b business people go and learn the things that they need to know. Why is it that it's not for business people to understand tech? Why are they getting a yes. free pass and saying, oh, I don't know, it's too, too clever for me, or, you know, in, I don't in, need to know that. I, I, I think you're correct in the sense that basically technologies, we are expected to translate uh, between the companies components and the elements and everything and the business goals versus the business decides this is important, now figure it out. Now it happens that this is the industry where we live. Um, if you would change the model, then maybe the departments would be structured in a different way, but now there is too much technology, too many startups, as we were saying. Mm. So there has to be this notion that somebody has to kind of decide where to go and the others to build it. Now this creates dynamics because, for example, some vendors, especially let's say small companies, small startups, will engage with a technologist and they may have a problem translating this into business value. And that's why adoption sometimes is slow. And some companies are going to go straight to the CEO to say, this is valuable for you, buy my boxes, we don't need to understand what, what they are for, but this is the business value. So this is the, the different sales of uh, sales cycles that you were mentioning before. But uh, 
happens that today in the enterprise world, the technologies are expected to speak both languages. Mm. Oh, to, to that end, the success we are seeing is, so uh, early on I was being brought in to talk to managers, directors of infrastructure, of networking, of compute. Um, that, that really wasn't getting me anywhere. Um, and now I'm almost exclusively wanting to go talk to the business units directly and then go back. Because we have a relationship with infrastructure people, so we, we know what they're used to working with, we know the problems they have. Um, I, I have customers who have kind of very advanced designs that can deliver a service in seconds, but it takes them six weeks to do it because of a process that's in front of it going through. Uh, How did you know that was my next point? Oh. <laughs> but, but I have to get to the business unit to talk to them. Like, um, are they going to go around? Like, if I want to put in um, a platform as a service solution, a uh, perfect example, I go to the customer, I finally get to the business unit, and they're like, man, if you had been here six weeks ago, we already started putting into Heroku. So there's two things. SaaS. So, there's two so things. I'm like, ah. I think there's two things in that point. One is you're better at enterprise IT than the enterprise IT team, right? Because you're going and talking directly to the business unit. So we've got this dysfunctional enterprise IT, and that's very widespread. You're, you know, you, you're nodding your head. Well, I was thinking, Tommy, we, we love it when our uh, vendors go above us. You know, yeah. <laughs> enterprise <laughs> IT. Some do, some don't. Uh, but now, you're, you're, I mean, your point is exactly right, though, uh, Greg. In a dysfunctional environment, maybe that's necessary. I'd like to think mine's not that dysfunctional. Remember, but, four, but, weeks in a, four weeks in a classroom and three yeah. weeks of home effort, and then no, you're, you're right. certified for life. We don't teach them to communicate. We don't even teach them computer science. We take some... You know, how many people have I spoken to who were a carpenter three years ago? They did a CCNP course at night because computers would be cool, and yeah. now all of a sudden they're sitting on top of a 20 million budget. You're right. You're right. If those are the people that are trying to interface with the business, uh, they're probably not being very successful. Um, you know, no knock on carpenters, of course. But. Yeah. yeah. At the same time, you could argue that uh, we all know how to drive cars, mm -hmm. and we may not be experts on combustion. Driving a like, car doesn't make you a mechanic. Exactly. Or much less a car designer. But uh, at the same time, you can appreciate when a car is good and a car is bad, too. So, mm -hmm. so it's not fair completely saying that in order to understand IT and drive IT, you must know how to build a switch or how to build a router. But see, the salespeople get out there and tell these people that how fantastic they are and how, you know, literally, you know, hit the positive stroking and the build up the customer's ego so that they can get the sale, right? Mm -hmm. It builds this whole negative cycle of enterprise IT, telling them how awesome they are, giving them this overpriced kit that actually nine times out of 10 doesn't work. Like, literally, we expect to buy a product from our enterprise IT vendors and we expect it to be faulty when it hits the ground. Yeah. That we re if you were buying a car or a house like that, that would never happen. The government would have lawsuits that have divisions that we get. But we expect to buy a switch or a router or an SDN platform on the understanding that when we get it, it doesn't work and it's faulty. So the first thing we do is test it. Which may be the integration aspect we were discussing about the component movement that we run all components and then the components have to integrate versus maybe the hyperconverged solution. And maybe that's why hyperconverged is now having like a, a great success in the sense that it eliminates the, the faulty integrations between one mm. component and the other and delivers you something that just works. Yeah. Well, maybe our vendors could make better products. Like instead of focusing on features, they could focus on stability and reliability and features that could be sustained over time. Yeah, but I think also most companies don't actually know what the minimal viable product should be. And so you know, the challenge is, you know, what, what is it that I need from my vendors? You know, it might be simply, hey, I just need a, a tour that does BGP. Um, but I think you know, they, don't, they don't have that place now. So they, when they look at this myriad of choices, it's like, 
you know, this, this model number versus this other model number, not what are, the, what are the features and functions that I actually need? What's the bare bone requirements in order to deliver this service? And everyone's bought something that fell a little bit short, right? And, mm. and that, is, that is a worse place to be than buying something that's a little more than what I needed in terms of capacity or features. And, and so there's a... I would actually call that a success. I, I'm right? not, I if, if you buy something that's not quite enough, then you haven't wasted money. But if you've bought something that actually has too much speed or is uh, you know, 15 or 20% over requirement, you've actually just wasted that money. Uh, well, it depends on what you can do with the thing you bought that Well, from a business work, point of view. But I, I see your right? point. Yeah. My point is that in IT, we quite often yeah. buy double the amount of compute or the extra memory oh, or a storage gotcha. array that will scale for unknown requirements. That yeah. most of the time is just wasted spend. Well, there's there's, there's public, no justification for that. There's your public cloud for you, right? You get exactly. Well, what I you think mean. this is the rise of the public cloud: is you only spend as you need, and many yeah. people have literally been caught with the EMC sales rep selling them the storage array for multi multi millions, and then only ever using a fraction of it, right? And never getting an ROI, and then we end up because I still see myself as enterprise IT. We end up taking the you know, looking like idiots because we spent all this money and got nothing back. Oh, the chassis switch with two modules, right? Yeah. 15 slots and two modules. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you'll never need to replace it in 10 years. Right, Yeah. right, if it lasts that long. Yeah, but we'll charge you for it like it's a 10-year ROI. <laughs> um, process. Process. All right. So here's a question. How much of the enterprise buying process is uh, fettered by ITIL or by other processes that our companies have bought into? Uh, Truman, I don't know if you're uh, dealing with that sort of world or not. Uh, we're, we're not uh, focused on ITIL. Um, but you know, in terms of the purchasing decisions, um, we're actually very much a technology-focused company. So um, technologists make the calls and you know, are part of the entire uh, decision-making um, the, the, the entire process, the negotiations, the conversations with the vendors, you know, we're, we're, we treat it as it's so important, our network means so much to us that we have to spend the extra effort and actually be part of you know, the entire process of, of making you know, this, this entire holistic solution. Um, so for us, it's something we definitely do in-house. Um, that you know, we're, not, we're not at a place where uh, you know, the process is actually getting in the way. Of course, there are processes that can cause challenges to actually, you know, pulling the order and, and actually making sure that delivery items, you know, come in. But we try to move to an area where, you know, we're basically uh, rolling racks of equipment in and so that you don't have individual business units that are, you know, making a, you know, I need four servers over here. It's like there's equipment, you can put it to use, there's processes to kind of spin this stuff up. It's more of a technology choice for us. Yeah, which doesn't sound like a negative. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of companies that, uh, that I've worked with that the process is so daunting to try to make any kind of a change. Uh, it uh, really slows things down. And you get to the point as a technologist where because the process is so daunting, you don't want to make a change. You just want to keep things the same so, it's, so life is easier. You know, Jeremy, you're nodding your head. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. In a lot of corporate IT, you get two to three week you know, change windows, maintenance windows a week. And uh, that's if there's no holidays. Well, you get paid not to do work. Uh, well, let's not say <laughs> that's that. That's what I call it. <laughs> <laughs> when I want to upset the ideal project manager, I sit there and say, so you don't want me to do anything and for days? You're, you're right. <laughs> you're right. The best engineers are frustrated by that, right? You know, when, when can I, how many things can I cram into one maintenance window to keep mm. this project moving along? And then it becomes a failure point. Because and, and exactly. You've increased the risk by doing three things instead of one mm. you know, this week because you know you're not going to get to get another shot at it for two to three more weeks. Mm. Uh, now that, that's a real challenge. I don't know so much in the purchasing cycle, um, but you know, once the purchase is complete, actually getting that new technology implemented. The process is more than just ITIL and TOGAF. Right. It's also purchasing, budgeting, 
and having to put up with managers. So this current fashion that you have regular review meetings with your boss, which mostly devolves into, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Staff reviews. Yay. And thanks, HR. <laughs> what about you, Tommy? Are you putting together process around your DevOps stuff, or are you just, is there, as a reseller, are you able to just you know, be flexible and fluid? Uh, we're flexible, but if the solution I'm putting in isn't being tied back to collapsing a process, um, you've really struggled. The example I made earlier of something that can do in six seconds, in that case it was VDI, okay? It was a Horizon environment. You could have a VDI six seconds. It took six weeks to get into the hand of the user, right? Collapsing that, I, I, I went in, it was you know 10 lines of script to do what the actual code we needed to do. It was so simple, right? But it was talking to all these different people saying, who sends the ticket to who? What do they do with it? What do they fill out? And we got it down to 10 lines of code. <laughs> and attacking it at that level. And I'm, I'm running now into customers, uh, some very good enterprise architects who are doing the same thing, but they're, they're going at it from another level, um, from, from almost the enterprise architect level. They're, they're seeing that all the business process is starting to hamper the business getting their requirements met. And it's, it has to be collapsed. So I, I just look at it from that lens. If the automation I'm putting in, right, I'm charged with all things automation, all the dev development network, everything. If it's not collapsing process, we failed, right? It has to, we have to identify the processes that flow today and then apply automation effectively and then collapse the processes. And then, but the, like I said from the very beginning, the vision, the buy-in, the staying the course to that change has to go all the way to the top because they want speed, but then you have this process, this change in the middle where people are reviewing. Everyone along the way needs to be bought in. It's okay to make firewall yeah. changes during the day. But that's not, any, any big company is inherently dumb and stupid like that. You know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Mm -hmm. You have to talk to everything part, you know, the elbow, the, the shoulder, the neck, all the way around the other side. Perry, you're talking to a lot of companies, a lot of customers. Yes. So is there any actual willingness to change the internal processes, or are we just screwed? No, I would say processes always trail technology. I mean, it's not that the processes are bad, in the sense that if a process was designed 10 years ago when we forced all the technology to be broken in components and you needed 25 steps that had to be followed carefully to put the things together to succeed, maybe 10 years ago when the process was designed with the technology of 10 years ago, it was awesome. Now, technology has evolved. You can spin a VDI session in six seconds. Uh, you can create a network with automation in no time. You can even tie it to whatever, Kubernetes, uh, OpenStack, vSphere, and have the infrastructure end-to-end -end, like provision with an API. At this point, what happens is that technology has evolved because basically we've been listening to the, the problems of IT departments and how to streamline those things, and now the processes need to adjust. Now, one way to adjust the process is like, oh, go to the cloud. You'll have to adjust it right away because you are going to give provisioning to the business units. The other is like, no, figure out and go step by step to all the, the processes that you have in the organization in a way that now you change them and you adjust them for the current world. And I think we are in this transition. That's why we are all kind of like, oh, process is bad, uh, technology is bad, or process is good, and technology is bad, because we are in the middle of a transition where before we were doing things by steps, and now we expect everything to be just like work with an API or an automation layer. And we have to adjust the, the internal processes to the new technology. And when this happens, then we'll say, oh, there's no tension until we'll start finding the problems of the new way of operating. Mm. And then we'll have to fix it again. One more point I want to go back to before we close this out. We were talking about training earlier and criticizing vendor training for being too vendor specific and then people needing to have their own motivation to go out and find the resources that are out there to try to scale up. But what's happening at the university level? What are we training 
uh, our computer science graduates to do and how do they think. Um, a lot of the university programs I've looked at, because I have two kids that are, are college age or nearly so, look, either they have a, a Cisco or Microsoft stamped program as part of their practitioner track, or it's antiquated. Uh, and there's a very few programs that seem to be you know, forward thinking. Um, is there a relationship that as an industry we should be having with our universities to improve what's coming out of our computer science graduates? I mean, it would be great. Uh, the, the challenge is that you can't train somebody to be an IT architect you know, out of college. You can train them to have uh, an entry-level job in IT, some kind of practitioner job, like as a server admin, as a network admin, and then they work their way up. Uh, so even if we had like architecture programs uh, for, for early career, uh, I don't, I'm not sure how that helps in the short term. Uh, it, it seems like more of a master's type program to me, but um, honestly, you know, most people in our field don't want to take the time to go back and get a master's degree to, for what purpose? You're already making it. it, it it's expensive for what payoff, right? Right. What do you get out of it, right? right. You, could, you could spend five years at work and get a pay rise and be fine. Yeah, yeah, you, you do your financial yourself a disservice by taking two years off or, or even just spending the time, I would think. Uh, I don't know, that, that would be my choice. Uh, makes more sense to go towards a business degree of some sort, I would, I would expect. I mean, Truman, does a company like yours, do you guys actually work with any programs and say, we're looking for graduates with these sorts of skills yeah. so that we can recruit them? Yeah, we, we do. Um, and we also do training, uh, significant training. Uh, so once people actually come in and join, uh, if they don't have a background, they have computer science, but they don't actually have uh, some of the, the programming knowledge that they need to work on our equipment mm -hmm. and on our, our uh, uh, financial applications. Um, they get you know training on this stuff, so I think you know it's an area where I think I think you know one of the areas that we should actually look at is um, more diversity in our uh, in our teams. Um, you know, some of the best network engineers that I've ever worked with, their background was not computer science or elect electrical engineering. It was right. actually you know like chemists or mathematicians, you know, people that have, you know, just a completely different background. And so as you have that, you have this interesting cross pollination where you end up having just different approaches to solving some of these common problems. Okay, well, I think we're just about heading up. Has anybody got any closing thoughts? Anybody you want to? I've been leading the discussion here today to try and make things lead pretty straight down the line. Any final questions from you, Ethan? No, that was my final question. I wanted to get that university <laughs> thing because it's one thing that's really been bothering me with kids yeah. that are college age. Uh, you know, how do we work better with universities to get better, better result, better graduates that are more I mean, if qualified? You go to most enterprise IT teams, there's actually no young people in them. So I'm not sure that there's enterprise IT as such is actually a growth market. I don't think it's at the moment. It's pretty stable, and we're not really recruiting. Well, I think some of it's changing. You know, you talk about going to the serverless conference and seeing those people that are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. So there's young people in, in IT yeah, I mean, just coming in from a different angle. I'll disagree a little bit. We, you know, the company I work for, and I know I'm sure trimming your company as well, has a probably pretty strong either recruiting or internship program for, for college-age students. Uh, and that leads to a lot of good hires in, at our company. And it helps us avoid some mistakes as well. So. From my side, I would say, if we are having this type of conversations in a conference like this, is by the fact that we think that technology can give us or show us a path to some of the solutions uh, we need. So I think we have to figure out how IT departments become more intellectually curious. Uh, how do we explore new trends, new technologies, new operational tools in a way that uh, becomes more risk management of do I get stuck in where I am versus I try these new things and tied to the training, to the university programs, to the uh, everyday training. I mean, we have to like, figure out if IT is about being at the forefront of technology, how can we become stuck in processes from 10 years ago? 
So how do we bring this uh, try, learn, and, and tinker with things and break things back to the ideas you were saying, back to the fun part of it? I mean, as an engineer, mm. I would like to do things because they are fun. And I'm going to pick two. One, it will break badly, and I'll never touch it again. But maybe I'll learn something new. Mm. We have to bring back this to the enterprise. Taking a risk, failing fast, and yeah. coming back. Otherwise, as a matter of fact, in enterprise IT, the only thing you get pun you don't get rewarded for anything. You only get punished when you fail. Yeah. Mm. Welcome to Enterprise IT. I think that's a happy note to finish things on. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us today for the Packet Pushes podcast. As always, you can find more, many more, fine free technical podcasts on our website at packetpushes.net. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or whatever it is that you like. Thanks very much to Jeremy Philibin, to Truman Boys, to Perry Munklers, Tommy McNichols, and Mr. Ethan Banks, as always, what a disgusting pleasure it's been to be here in person. <laughs> the same, my friend, a yeah. disgusting pleasure. And always remember that too much technology would never be enough. Thank you.